Welcome to the second series of The Man Who Was Scared to Death. In this audio documentary, I talk to people who work and spend time in the presence of death on a daily basis in order to help me come to terms with my eventual demise. In this episode, I speak to Gemma Norban, an anatomical pathology technologist based in an NHS mortuary, and I learn what will happen to my body when, or if, I die. Yikes. I'm an anatomical pathology technologist, or APT, um, and I work in a hospital mortuary in East London. Well, first things first, you're going to have to talk me through your day job, then what exactly does it entail? Sure. I I work Monday to Friday. I do eight till four. In addition to that, I do um, some on-call stuff outside of that. So our mortuary effectively is covered 24-7, but obviously I don't work that. (laughs) but well, that's, effectively... that's going to send you into an early grave, isn't it, for one? <laughs> yeah. Um, so we get in in the morning and we we book in anyone who's new. Uh, so um, come to us. At this point, I should explain. So mm. although I work in a hospital mortuary, we not only receive deceased from the wards and from within the hospital, but also from outside from the community as well. So we get anyone who's died within certain London boroughs, they will... they. They come to us, not always, but most of the time they will. And is that presumably dying at, dying at home, I presume, then? Or... Yeah, dying at home or anywhere else. Okay. Yeah, it could be wherever somebody dies. The kind of exception to that rule is if somebody dies and they're uh, on end-of-life care or palliative care, if they've been ill for a long time, then on certain in certain circumstances, they can go straight to funeral directors. But sure. yeah, outside of that, they come to us. So essentially everyone goes through your your hands, I suppose, don't they, in the end? Pretty, uh, not everyone, no. Um, like I say, there are certain people who, who don't, but yeah, most people, I think it's fair to say. So what kind of tasks do you perform in the week? So yeah, like I say, we book people in, so that takes up most of our morning, or not, uh, a chunk of the morning, and we open up at a certain time in the morning as well to funeral directors to come and collect people as well. So we're booking people in, we're releasing people out to funeral directors. Uh, within that, we also do an element of caring for the people within our mortuary, so that's condition checking, making sure that they're okay and that they're clean changing the linen that they're in or cleaning them if we need to uh and then on the other side of that we do the viewings for any families so we have a viewing suite that we can uh, facilitate viewings or visit Uh, you always say the two different words because there's always a preference of the language around how people like to phrase that i'll never forget the time that um i was talking to somebody about their viewing of their loved one and they said well it's not a house i'm not coming to view a house i was like (laughs) okay yeah fair point um (laughs) so yeah we do that as well we have appointments for viewings throughout the day or visits and then we also do the technical support post-mortem as well so um on not every day for for ourselves i mean some mortuaries do them every day but we don't we do post-mortem work with pathologists who come and work with us the main bulk of that is what we or what is known as coronial work under the coroner so Mm -hmm. they are a a situation where uh, you don't know how somebody's died and it needs to be investigated but that's outside of any kind of suspicious circumstances occasionally we get we do have the more like the suspicious circumstances the the classic thing would be like a suspected murder or a murder or something like that sometimes we have forensic postmortems that we have to do and yeah a little bit of kind of 
everything really <laughs> everything um, to do with death it would appear yeah pretty much yeah a little bit of working with police and 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 yeah various different things like i say every day can be quite different <laughs> but i suppose the one constant that uh, when you actually walk into work and this would be unlike me i work in unsurprisingly the media so you don't get that many dead bodies but there's a few um <laughs> that you, you know when you go in that's what you're sort of dealing with on a day-to-day basis there's no prospect of anyone sort of popping up and being alive it's very much that that mindset what drew you to that kind of um that kind of role it was something that I'd always kind of had in the back of my mind. I think, like you said about yourself, how you had this this thought process around death from a young age, and it was something that had kind of sat with you for a long time. I had a similar thing, but in a more of a, I need to understand it and kind of pick it apart and know it a bit more well and familiarise myself with it almost. Yeah. I came in a bit of a weird way though because although I'd I'd considered it as a, a a career in a way I decided at a point during my teens that I actually wanted to be an archaeologist so I went into archaeology I actually went on to do a master's degree as well and that's kind of what led me through to the the more I hate oh no I don't hate using this term but I do use it when I talk about this the fresher dead (laughs) because obviously archaeology was the older dead and I I went into forensic archaeology and anthropology so that was working in mortuaries studying kind of anatomy to an extent and I had this fascination for a while with people who were donating their bodies to science and Mm -hmm. and that situation because that was kind of outside of family that I'd seen who had died that was the first kind of dead people that I'd, I'd seen in that kind of setting and then uh, I graduated in 2009 so that was around the time that the economy wasn't doing so great I didn't really have any job prospects in archaeology or certainly not in forensic archaeology and was really struggling with it to, what to do so I kind of bumbled around and I worked in retail for a while after that I went to work in financial data services Classic. and I was bored out of my mind <laughs> <laughs> And I was quite lucky that I knew a couple of people and my manager was actually quite, she could see that I wasn't happy and she could see that I was bored and it wasn't doing anything for me. And she just kind of sat me down one day and said, well, what do you actually want to do? <laughs> what, what can can I help you get there? And it just kind of came out and I said, actually, I'd, I'd really love to work with the dead and I'd really love to <sighs> go back to something akin to kind of what I've, I studied and, and that side of things. But actually, I think I'd like to work in a mortuary. And um, I started to look into it a bit more. And that was for a long time. I didn't realize it was a career that you could kind of do. I thought you had to have a medical background. I thought you had to be a doctor or something. Worked in the same sort of line of work, pretty much around writing and you know editing and that kind of thing. And I, I always have this time, and we all do, don't we? Think, I really should be doing something else at some point. You know, what do I really want to do? And all the things you think, obviously, oh, that's just not possible. How can I, you know, yeah. I to become a photographer? It's just it's not really an, an option. But the fact is, I suppose you found it. What was yeah. that applying process like? Right? Obviously, you got the background, which which helps. But how much did you ever think it was going to happen? It's not easy. That's one of the things about being an APT is that it's quite difficult not only to find jobs to apply for because there aren't many and sometimes it's again it's a bit of a weird route in to get into it because you can I was told basically to 
try and get into the NHS and then right. try and get some kind of experience or at least meet and speak to the people in the mortuary and then one figure out if it was for me or not because there's still that kind of element there if you haven't done it you don't know that you're going to be okay yeah not just from the perspective of seeing dead people but also the the heavy emotional side to it as well. Is that actually something they warned you about then in this process from the interview? They say not everyone's cut out for it. Pardon, mm. pardon. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, because I, I I have no doubt there are people who who start these roles or or think that they want to 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 do this kind of work and and realise probably quite quickly that actually it's not they're not suitable, which is fine. I don't think it is kind of for everyone and, and anyone. I think it's certainly a, a certain type of person and a certain mindset that you need to, to work in a mortuary. Have, have you known people then to, to start and then not to continue or leave for that kind of reason? I think in off the top of my head, I can't think of anyone in particular, but it's it's certainly something that I've heard other people say about. And I know that probably someone somewhere would have statistics of people that start and especially start kind of the training program and and don't fully go through with it there's probably a number of reasons why people don't continue but i would say there's it's a you know possible that there there's a fair number of people that would start and 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 not go through with it for that reason I suppose because it's such i mean such a literal essential service much like a lot of the nhs there's a certain pride and usefulness of the kind of work that you're doing which doesn't really exist in a lot of other roles financial data for one and what I do essentially you know the world wouldn't change if I didn't do what I did but of course if you suddenly didn't have people who are processing the dead then presumably life would look in society look different very quickly a lot of people I mean most people have never heard of an anatomical pathology technologist um I know I've said that to people say oh, what do you do and I say that and they just look at me blankly um, deal with the dead of course of course <laughs> well I normally say oh I don't like I, it's not a term that I like and I'm not really sure why I don't like it I think I just preferred saying APT or but um mm. I normally go I'm a I'm a mortician and they go oh okay yeah I know what that is <laughs> is it actually then is it like that career path then from mortician up to coroner is that kind of what people aspire to so you're more on the again I'm going to say they were cutting edge aren't I you know you're, <laughs> you're more deeply involved what some might I suppose deem more interesting cases if something if there's you're trying to work out what has happened to someone? Is that something that is clear career path or something that you're interested in? I would say not strictly. There's certainly a, a way of kind of moving into the coroner's office, being like a coroner's officer where you work within the office alongside the coroner. And there's, there's several other things that you can kind of sidestep into in that way. In terms of career path of an APT, at, as it stands currently, you're quite limited in a way of what you can do. You start off as a trainee, you become qualified, you then do, um, and that's through doing a, a diploma, and then you can do a further diploma to become a senior APT. And then if you want to, you can kind of become a mortuary manager. Post that level, you're quite limited on where you can go kind of in terms of going upwards. It also seems like a lot of study. I personally did do a year studying to be a counsellor. It's something that I'm very interested in. Mm. When the face with the reality is not of your knowledge or, or how you deal with the job, but the, the amount of money you'd need to do the amount of years of study followed by you know, having to pay for your own sort of um, setup. It, it just seems I'm always constantly surprised that people were able to do it. I'm I'm a bit of a geeky, nerdy person and I, I, I love study in in a yeah in that way so 
Uh, yeah. <laughs> it's, 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 it's natural for you to, to, to learn all the time, essentially. Absolutely, yeah. <laughs> I know, and I know that I'm very unusual for that. <laughs> uh, I've met a few people. I mean, no, I mean, there are definitely people who, who are not trapped, but they, you know, you can see them doing masters upon masters upon diplomas. And it seems for me like you know, that obviously is a barrier to a lot of people. But if it comes naturally, I think that's, that's a good thing. I was going to yeah. ask about the post-mortem part of it then so mm-hmm. when you're actually dealing with these situations that are clearly slightly unusual or more unusual does that take a completely different mindset no I think it's fair to say that you generally treat each one individually and that mm-hmm. every single post-mortem can be interesting to to an extent I I'm quite lucky I think I work quite often with a pathologist and he's always quite keen to to share kind of what he's found and and talk it through and explain it which I really like I like to be able to kind of understand it if it's a more of a kind of pathologist that comes in does their work gets it done walks out and then you're kind of like oh okay <laughs> what happened? Um, so that, yeah that's one of the things like we are as technologists within the, within the post-mortem situation obviously um well not obviously I, I should explain really we mm. do the actual evisceration as it's known so we take out all of the organs while we're doing that if we see anything significant or that we we're not sure about or that we need to query we can show the pathologist at that time and, and they can kind of tell us or guide us on what to do or if they want to remove it themselves or something like that but generally we take everything out ourselves and then pass that to pathologists for them to do dissection separate and away and then we do the reconstruction afterwards my god see now you've just actually got my legs leg shaking i'm um, just for you know when it's something so visceral you know you feel it in your gut <laughs> rather than anything else that whole process let's just dive into it and how, how long does that on average take it's quite hard to answer. I do get asked this question quite a bit. <laughs> I it really depends. It depends what kind of one what's going on in there. Right, <laughs> um, of course. And then how long it takes for them to to do their dissection and examine it. Prior to that, we, we you don't go straight in with that. We would do an external examination as well. So look at someone, look at anything, any kind of injuries or bruising or scars or anything like that. So all in all, what what I tend to say is it can take if we do six cases, it can take around four to five hours in total, I would say. Mm, maybe that's a bit of an overestimation but yeah that kind of length of time but to kind of put a single case in <laughs> is quite hard actually see now that gives me the impression i, I would have I, I thought you were going to say four or five days for a second so i, I now get the feeling that there's a lot more dead people than i than i anticipate coming through your doors yeah i mean i can only talk about the mortuary that I work at every place is different because it everywhere covers different areas and obviously we are quite busy because we cover a large area and also the hospital covers a large area we have space for 113 yeah I mean we're not always that's not always completely full but yeah if you think of we have capacity for 113 people I suppose so the difference if someone's getting a post-mortem or otherwise if they're not it's just how long until the funeral is that their mm-hmm. length of stay? And then post-mortem, yeah. similarly, I suppose. Yeah, yeah. I mean, again, it depends on how busy we are and the availability of the, the doctors. And there's a lot of factors involved in that. But generally, post-mortems happen quite quickly. They can happen within kind of two or three days of someone coming to us quite often. And it doesn't cause a huge delay on, on somebody's funeral most of the time. So I'm imagining it now that there's obviously you have 
essential office that you work in or the places I've seen in the NHS seem to have these offices and then obviously you've got your the work areas do you actually just get your like your laptop and a seat you know is that what we're talking we have an office and what we call the fridge room so it has fridges in it <laughs> and then w- within that area there's a door that goes off to our post-mortem room and then also access to that viewing room that I was talking about yeah and yeah and then we have a funeral director access and we have a a porter's access from the hospital and we have a very 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 nice tea room that we get to use (laughs) I mean they're gonna have to give you something aren't they you know they have to be free free lunch or something do you think there's anything from your your chart because I only asked because as I was sort of explaining before we started you know my obsession with with existence and non-existence kind of started when I was a young teenager. Is there anything you can think of that might have put you on this path to be capable at least of working with the dead? I certainly, like I say, I think it was something that I, I thought about from a very young age. I had similar kind of thoughts. I've always thought myself a bit weird for thinking this when I was really young, but I used to really quite think quite deeply about my own existence and why I existed and why I was me. It would get quite deep, but I think death came into that a certain to a certain degree. Um, and then when I was I was around twenty, I think, when I a grandparent died. But I was very close to them, and I was there when they died. Oh, word, okay. That was, yeah, that was quite, it It was life-changing, if that, <laughs> that sounds a bit weird to say. I was um, going to say eye-opening, but, but yours is better. Yeah, it, it sat with me. And it still sits with me to witness that. And like I say, it just became this, this huge fascination in needing to know more. Do you think your, your own view of death has changed since you started doing this line of work? Yes. Yeah, I do. I think I, in a number of ways, it's changed. I think my the view of my own death has changed in that. It still scares me. I'm not going to lie. I still am. I have a fear of obviously, well, not obviously, but I do still have a fear of dying. But in a way, knowing exactly what would happen in terms of who would look after me, where I would go, what would happen, there's a comfort in that a little bit. I still, I'm not a religious person. I, I don't really believe in anything. And it's made me a little bit envious of people who are in that having that kind of faith in in something and what happens next because that's something that does that sits with me quite deeply and does scare me in in, okay if it's nothing that's fine but what if there is something (laughs) completely unprepared for it yeah What, what happens if you die and then suddenly they you know you rock up somewhere and then you're like oh oh i was meant to believe in that I don't know, is that a weird way of putting it? <laughs> I'm not, again, not, not not religious like you, but you can sort of see the argument for having faith because what have you got to lose? As you say, if there is nothing, I'm sure that, well, there's nothing. And mm. if there is something, then the good deeds will be chalked up. I, I spoke to a couple of people relevant. It's actually spoke to a funeral director in, on Green Lane. And and, uh, and like you, uh, she felt comforted doing her job because it's about practicalities. You know, she was, mm. any advice she would give is, get everything in order you make sure your loved ones know how you want to be buried where you want to be buried what you want the ceremony and it's like if you focus on the things that you're in control of then maybe you know the rest falls into place and you don't have to be so scared all the time because 
you're not going to know anything about it, but you're going to feel secure when you're alive that everything's going to be fine. And as yeah. you, know, you know now, what, what exactly what's going to happen to you? Well, not exactly though, Gemma, because we don't know if it's <laughs> going to be a post-mortem or not, do we? So, <laughs> Well, no, but I know what, if it is, then I know what happened. If it isn't, I know what happened. True, um, true. Yeah, I think there's definitely that sense of having being armed with the knowledge you it does allow you to prepare and I think that is one of the key things and also I I now also kind of semi-act as like a a source of information for people that I know (laughs) because when they have somebody die I'm one of the first people they come to as like what do I do what happens I yeah I, I do seem to be and I I I like that I like being helpful so I don't mind helping people and yeah, obviously, I, I accept that I've got a kind of knowledge set that most people don't have in terms of what needs to happen when somebody dies. But it's always about the other people, isn't it, as well? That's that's who death affects the most, the people that are left behind. Mm. And by having that practical knowledge, I'm sure you can be a help to, to lots of people. I was going to ask, the whole there's nothing after is probably the thing that scares me the most. I right. mean, I, I've been asked before, what would you like to happen? And then your answer is, uh, well, I'd like to live forever, obviously. And then they <laughs> say, well, who else would be in this plan of yours? You go, well, I'll take my son, maybe a few other people. I'd love to be around in 2000 years to see what would happen. I mean, I think we can all guess what would have happened to the world we're living in. But <laughs> nonetheless, you know, that it's the idea that you won't be around and there'll be people walking around and going about their business and it just won't yeah. involve you in the slightest. And so for me, you know, I'd love to believe saying ghosts because it's at least some proof that something happens after. But it sounds mm. like you would be perfectly fine if the answer was nothing. It's not going to hurt. There's not going to be anything. But you're, you're never going to wake up. Is that not something that would freak you out? If I think, oh, I have thought about that a lot. Um, and I think the, the knowing that if there is nothing, I'll have no awareness of it whatsoever. <laughs> yes. Um, that, I'm fine with that. <laughs> okay. I'm absolutely fine with if there's there's absolutely nothing and I just, that's the end. It's the maybe I'm wrong <laughs> aspect of that. You know what? It's made me really enjoy more than anything our sort of crime books and horror films because they live their whole life in the hour and a half in the film and they all die anyway so at least it makes you feel better that once you finish the film you're still going oh i like yeah. that well, yeah i mean are there any I'll parts of your life you. that you know, <laughs> are there any parts of your life that you describe as dark as darker than most because of what you do no i don't think so i don't think darker than most i think there's certainly if i'm thinking about kind of the impact of work in to my life in a way there's there's two things that come to mind first off the big one is and I think is a fairly obvious one is the impact of COVID and the pandemic how that impacted me was was huge and it I I don't find it hard to talk about but I do find it hard to kind of know where to start in terms of that in terms of how that impacted me do you still find it distressing in a way I'm seeing a a counsellor about this still um, and it's something no it's fine it's okay I'm I'm quite happy talking about it I think it's something I'm still processing a lot I'm still Mm. working through kind of a lot of it a lot I think I've kind of got to a stage now where I'm angry in a way a lot of different things and that's Mm. quite difficult to manage um so I won't go into that too much um (laughs) it's fine (laughs) but yeah that was certainly 
I thinking about that knowing that had I not gone into this job I wouldn't have had the experience that I had and seeing a lot of people and especially social media was the worst for this but seeing a lot of people kind of going oh another day at home and today I'm going to watch tv and then I'm going to do my Joe Wicks workout and then I'm going to do this and I was like okay I'm going to have another really awful day (laughs) Um, and probably be at work for a very long time yeah that was difficult that was really difficult and the sheer number of people dying was was really hard for for quite a few different reasons and the biggest one that sits with me was the being unable to care for everyone as much as I wanted to and being able to treat people as the individuals like I I wanted to but you just didn't have the time but anyway that aside so that's 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 one um, unfortunate horrific (laughs) experience yeah obviously put you on the front line specifically yeah what else what was the other one then so the other one it's kind of something that I've I've thought about a lot and there are some days where I will I feel like I don't cope as well as others and I now describe these as my too much sad days <laughs> um, so I feel like I have a I think actually most of us do especially the people I work with I know especially well that they and myself you have a kind of capability of dealing with a certain amount of sad within a day because obviously we speak to bereaved families and we you know and you can kind of take a lot to a point but then there will just be some days where there's just too many of those things or they're especially sad individually and they all kind of build up and it will get to you and acknowledging that and knowing how to deal with that on those days has been quite hard but I think I've kind of got to a good place with that now. It sounds like the kind of work where you do need good, solid support base. And, yeah. you know, to be able to talk about it, I know I went to see Adam Key. Was it Adam Kay? Adam Kay. Levy, Adam Kay. Yes. And obviously dreadfully funny. But at the end, he's like, you know, if you know anyone who works in the NHS, just at the end of each day, no matter how your day was, just sit them down and ask them about their day. Because, <laughs> you know, you are dealing with the fundamentals of life of people as you say who are grieving or who are angry mm. or who are upset who are ill who are well in the NHS obviously you know who are dying and it's the moments we don't really consider we're ever going to be in because we like to think everything's going to be okay and there's mm. no doubt one day we're all going to need well literally you I'm just you know in awe of people who do that kind of work because it's it, for often not brilliant reward when we're talking about money and stuff so do you normally say the weekend say you've done an important job this week or does it do you just end up compartmentalizing it and going oh that was my work and this is my non-work life yeah the latter <laughs> I'm definitely yeah I kind of go okay that was work and now, right. this. now it's over yeah. <laughs> yeah yeah I think no it is hard and some things do stay with you and I do think about some things outside of work certainly but yeah generally I kind of leave work at work <laughs> good where it should where it should be well let's let's bring things back full circle and on a more positive note uh let's mm-hmm. say i let's say i die after this call mm-hmm. uh, as a as a 47 year old reasonably healthy uh, a man what would i expect to happen to me so you if you died at home then it would be a funeral director who's assigned to your area would come and get you and then bring you to the mortuary mm-hmm. and then there's a, a process where your death would be referred to the local coroner's office mm-hmm. And I would imagine they would request a postmortem. Because of the sudden nature of, yes, fine, fine. 
Yeah, and and no previous health reasons as to why you might have died. And then within that, so at the next available postmortem day, you would you'd have that postmortem investigation. Once that's been completed, as long as uh, a cause has been found, then you will you would be cleared from the coroner's from their office and then the the, you the case is closed effectively if there is a further investigation for example if there needs to be tissues sent away to be looked at or any of organs sent away to be looked at then that's a bit more complicated but that can happen at that point you can still be released to funeral directors to go for your funeral so then that is kind of the next stage that would happen and then yeah you go to the funeral directors out of my care and then I don't know too much about what happens after that, but... (laughs) I'm pretty sure we get in the ground or we're burnt. Yeah, eventually. (laughs) I I have a last question for you. I do ask this to everyone, so it's not a... Don't take it personally. But if you had to choose a a way of departing this this planet, which way would you go? Mm. Something catastrophic which by that is i mean a something medical and internal that just means sudden death and preferably in my sleep That's, I, for, <laughs> for a minute i thought you were going the same line as i has which is catastrophic but as in the world ends no so I we don't all go know. at the same time Goodness, no i mean okay that's you know there's no dying yeah. alone then wherever you're standing or or out. That would also be fine. Um, if we get to all go together, then that is absolutely fine. But yeah, if it's just me, then something like a brain hemorrhage in my sleep would be lovely. Thank you. 